0: It's been especially nice being at the Gyro Conference this week.
1: It was great, wasn't
0: it? It was probably my favourite Gyro ever for obvious reasons because we just haven't been physically together in the same place since 2019. And it was just so wonderful to bump into people, meet people that I'd only ever met on screen before.
1: Yeah, it was my first in person Gyro Conference. So, I mean, maybe I've hit the heights now, Shah, or maybe they'll just continue to get better. It was fantastic to. See people in person at the talks, being able to go along and sit and think and then being able to afterwards digest and discuss what we'd heard a lot of the time virtual talks they're great because you can fit them in around a very busy working day, which is fantastic, but you very quickly listen to something interesting and then bam straight back into what you were doing. You don't have the time to really absorb any learnings or any challenges you might have around what was said, and then think about how that might apply.
0: I think that's right. And I think it's necessary because right now I think is the most technically challenging time to be a general insurance actuary that I can remember since I came into the market. You know, we've got such a confluence of tricky issues and also the standard of actuarial modelling is vastly higher than it was 10, 15 years ago put those two together and we're all on a bit of a learning curve. Inflation's a great example. I, I, every few weeks, I f- I'm tempted to think I've got my head around inflation and then something happens and I realise, no, nah, I haven't fully understood it yet.
1: I think probably the learning with inflation is to learn that you can never really know everything and you're going to be every day's a school day, as they say.
0: Absolutely. One of the great things about being at Gyro is that I bumped into a lot of people who've been listening to our podcast.
1: I know, wasn't it great?
0: a it was very encouraging but b it's really useful because we get the sort of listenership stats but of course we don't know who the people are who are listening so it was so helpful to hear from people what aspects of insurance uncut they found useful and also some suggestions for future topics which i think are spot on and i know we're going to make happen in the new year
1: yeah it was nice to know that it's not just my dad listening on repeat each week who does not work <laughs> in the insurance industry so it's not really yeah pu- any pushing
0: up the stats this. yeah,
1: yeah. Welcome to Insurance Uncut, the podcast where we explore the big issues impacting the general insurance market.
0: I'm Charles Cronier,
1: and I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP.
0: We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch with your questions or feedback via LinkedIn or our website.
1: Let's kick off with this week's episode. This is the final episode of season two, and. I mean, I can't believe we're here because it means that Christmas is around the corner and 2022 is over. Today, we're going to do basically a wrap-up of 2022, what our key takeaways have been, what we've learned, and then we're going to do some future gazing into 2023 and where we think our focus will be drawn to and what's front of mind.
0: So we thought a good way of looking back at the last year would be we challenged each other to each come up with three things that we've learned or three things that are important takeaways for us from the last year. So I'm, I have no idea what you're going to say, Jess, but I'm very keen to hear what are your three key lessons or takeaways from 2022.
1: So my first takeaway, and I'll bet a significant amount of money that this is also on one of your three takeaways for the year, Charles, is obviously around inflation. I think if episode one, We've mentioned COVID. How can we not get away from mentioning COVID? Season two has been almost every single episode we've mentioned inflation, I think, in, in some way. And as you yeah. we were just saying, it's an ever-learning topic. It's an ever-moving topic. It's an ever-changing topic. Ahead of today, I was looking back through some of the earlier episodes and what our thinking was at the start of the year and as this was emerging and how it's changed till now, I think that in itself is, is a learning and something that we should be aware of. I think one of the key things, though, I took away was essentially how wrong the Bank of England forecasts were, and how that has changed over the year. And we talked about it with Dan and Mary in episode nine, the kind of hairdryer chart and the constant changing forecasts that they were putting out. And I think, really, for me, the learning there was really understanding the motivation behind these external data sources. You know, whether that's the Bank of England or another index or another body what is the motivation for for that number they're putting out is it data they collected is it their opinion is it a poll kind of really questioning where the source is coming from and if there's an underlying motivation there at all that we should be considering
0: yeah i think we've all got better at understanding some of those data sources and their inherent strengths and weaknesses at one point i thought i was being very clever sort of focusing on uk cpi swaps rather than Bank of England forecasts. And then somebody pointed out to me that the UK CPI swaps market is almost entirely illiquid, almost never trades. And so it's very important to still look at the RPI swaps market, which is very deep and liquid. Fortunately, most of the time the CPI swaps yields kind of make sense relative to RPI, but you've still got to be careful. And then it's completely different in the US, the way they, you know, their CPI swaps work.
1: Was one of your key takeaways also inflation?
0: I'm afraid it was, yeah. And I feel like I've been on, like I mentioned, learning curves earlier, and I definitely feel like I've been on one of the steepest learning curves ever. I mean, I was actually around and doing actuarial work when inflation still used to be a thing. But I'm just, you know, I know the standard of general insurance modeling was not then what it is now. And I think we're all under appropriate pressure to get our heads around it properly now. So I do feel like I keep on learning more and more about the do's and don'ts. One of the things I'm wrestling with at the moment Really, still haven't bottomed out. Is you know, we talk about the inflation that is implicit in the historical chain ladder projections, and yes, there must be some inflation implicit there, but we must never think that there's something magical in the actual development curve that will be steeper or less steep and will signify the amount of historical inflation. There's so many, especially where we're using incurred methods rather than paid methods. Don't want to go down a techie actuarial rabbit hole, but I think that is still not being fully understood.
1: And it was definitely one of the topics at Gyro that was really heavily discussed. There was so many topics on inflation and particularly inflation within reserving. So I think there are many people across the industry that are still working out how how they manage it. It potentially leads me nicely on to my second key takeaway from the year. And that was actually around coordination and people being joined up within an organization. So for example, within inflation, so at LCP, we have an entire investment department whose job it is pretty much is to look and understand the markets. And I think we, I mean, we ended up chatting to them loads, but it was almost like, why haven't we always been chatting to them? Why have we always not had, you know, a super open dialogue with them? And I know on some projects it's, it's always been the case, but it felt like, Inflation has, I think, really brought us together more closely and I think we'll continue to always share that that kind of information. Pip talks about it in episode eight when she talked about joining the dots across an industry and then the idea of information going up a hierarchy to come down another side. And actually, it's about me talking to my counterpart in in another team or in an organization, talking to finance, talking to risk, talking to underwriting and, and making those connections And coordinating and learning much earlier on, so you can share information. But also, I think having a really clear understanding of what other people in your organization are doing, so you can help them or they might be able to help you.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely brilliant. And the investment example is such a strong one, because even since we spoke to Dan and Mary in episode nine, and covered some really interesting investment topics. The world has changed radically. We're basically back to a higher yield environment, which hadn't yet happened at that point. And I've had a number of conversations with pricing actuaries the last few days where they've been pointing out that allowing for investment returns in their pricing is now a much more material factor than before and investment strategy is going to get more interesting people aren't having to do some of the crazy things they were doing to try and chase higher yields maybe going down the sort of quality scale of bonds there's just a million things that will change there and i'm pretty certain that investment outlook will feature somewhere in our future episodes because i think again there's a bit of a learning curve for those of us who've done 10 12 years of actuarial work in a in a very low yield environment
1: yeah, and that was something else that Dynamo was saying, that sometimes a a simple investment strategy can actually be a risk within itself. So, you know, you've got to be on, on the front foot for these things and preempt what's coming around the corner. What was your second takeaway then, Shah?
0: My second takeaway was that I think actuaries and claims handlers still don't really understand each other. <laughs> so, not to say that their understanding is not improving all the time and is probably loads better now than it was a few years ago. I mean, some sort of seminal moments for me over the last few years have been when we had the Ogden rate shock in the UK. That prompted lots of really meaningful conversations between actuaries and claims handlers. The whiplash reforms recently are definitely another good example of where the only way to understand it is to speak to people who are handling claims you know, on the ground to understand what's changing. But frankly, I still don't think we're totally there yet in terms of understanding each other. So to generalise, Actuaries are quite good at standing back and looking at overall claims trends, and quite often we will spot big variations in case reserve strength that wouldn't necessarily be visible to the claims handlers themselves. However, we are a lot less good at understanding the drivers of those trends, partly because our skill in questioning the claims handlers is not yet what it could be, and also just because we're not necessarily seeing things at that micro level, and then turning it around I still see claims teams missing out by not thinking, as part of their management information, not thinking in terms of claims development triangles. You know, it's, it's a very simple analytics concept, and it works, and it's really, really powerful. So occasionally I'll still see claims teams miss trends that they could have spotted so easily if they just looked at a claims triangle. So yeah, lots of improvements still to come there. And I think another aspect of the relationship between the business and the case handlers is I think there's still scope to take some of the emotion out of conversations about case reserve adequacy. So on the one hand, the way to get a claims handler's backups to tell them that their case reserves are weak. But of course, at some point, case reserving is going to be weaker and at other points it's going to be stronger. And when you look at it historically, there is a fluctuation. And so I still look forward to the time when we're having a slightly more scientific and less emotional conversation about where case reserves are stronger and weaker, and that we accept that it'll never be perfect, but we try and feed that knowledge into projections. And the other side of the coin is case reserves being really strong, which again, case handlers might feel very good about, management might feel good about, you know, people are proud to say, we reserve conservatively. But you just got to watch out that in all your conservative reserving, you don't lose the ability to spot underlying trends. And again, with some insurers who are very, very well run and have very conservative case reserving, we're seeing that the sort of learning cycle where they spot a trend, either an adverse or a favourable trend, because it's hidden by so much conservatism, they have a slower feedback loop than is ideal. So yeah, both a learning for this year and also something I hope will improve in the next year.
1: Yeah, I I think having the time and headspace to look for these trends and spot them and that being a key part of what The actuary's role is, I think, is a great way they can help support the business. But yeah, we need to do much better at explaining technical actuarial concepts to non-technical audiences, because there's probably lots of insights and and barriers that can be broken down in just better communication.
0: I think that's right. Circling back to inflation for a moment, I think we realise when we speak to colleagues around different parts of an insurance business, everyone's got their own ideas of how to define inflation. Some people are thinking about including frequency effects, including exposure effects. None of this is inherently right or wrong, but it's really important to start getting a common vocabulary and, you know, common ways of defining things. Otherwise, it'll be very hard to get a handle on the problem. So, Jess, what was your third takeaway from this year?
1: So, my third takeaway is around the geopolitical. So, obviously, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has, I think, rocked the world quite a lot and all the knock on implications that that's had. I think it's really taught me how interconnected we really are as a world. And, you know, I think there's been an element of de-globalization to some degree within the UK, in some spheres, not in all, but actually we're so interconnected that there's no way that we will ever insulate ourselves from these global events. That event has really kind of emphasized the interconnectivity and how when thinking about uncertainty within our work, how we have to keep so up to date with what's actually happening in the world so that the uncertainties that we're looking at, the scenarios, our risk registers, what might be threats to our business are alive to current issues. We've been saying that the last few years has been unprecedented event after unprecedented event, and that actually just can't be the case. So I think, you know, the idea that you just have a list of scenarios that you run each year, and they're the same, I just don't think actually can operate in that same way. I think you've got to be really challenging them. What is currently happening in the world, or within our area, or within our industry, and where might the risks come?
0: That is very powerful, and I, I do think that, especially in areas like scenario planning, scenario testing, I think it's incumbent on all of us to be a lot more, a lot more creative, have a lot more plasticity in our thinking. And last year's scenarios, if you're just rerunning those, you're probably not doing nearly enough because the world is changing a lot faster than that.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Rajiv, in episode two, where we had the kind of energy talk and he kind of explained how the energy markets work and how complicated they are when you're coming up with a scenario. There's so many little features within that one market, which I had no idea about, that could disjoint and go out of play and the knock-on consequences that could have. So it's about I think, yeah, maybe having a deep understanding of the products we're writing or the areas that we're insuring in or the the relationships that are happening at governmental levels in order to start to understand the uncertainty more.
0: The energy example I think is really good because you know the energy market is huge. And if you're ever tempted to think that it's a stable force in the world, well, in the last two or three years, we've had everything from negative oil prices when you're having to pay people to store the stuff to absolute record high prices, all within a couple of years. And I think that's probably way outside the bounds of any statistical modeling that someone would ever do. Likewise, economic scenario generator providers have grappled this year with the fact that their models just simply didn't have enough variability in them to account for the the potential jump in inflation, and now also the jump in yields. And you can't get there by just looking at the tail of some sort of distribution you got to model the fact that one day we may wake up and the entire paradigm is different. You throw away the old distribution and start with a new one. So fascinating from a modeling point of view as well.
1: And so, Charlotte, what's been your third takeaway of 2022?
0: My third takeaway is that I'm realising afresh, and it's very nice to realise it, that I like spending time face-to-face with people.
1: Oh, well, that's quite nice, given I'm one of those people that you spend some face-to-face time with.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, we spent a bit of proper face time together yesterday and early this week, which was so wonderful. So I'm a massive proponent of working because it does suit me rather well with my long commute, and I like having an extra lie-in in the morning. And so I've really appreciated all the flexibility that we've had during the COVID period and then since then. I also think that uh, hybrid working and sort of video calls and all the rest has had some real positives. For example, the less experienced members of our team tend to participate in more client calls now because it's easy to just add extra people to a call. You know, there's some definite positives and certainly I much prefer seeing people on a video screen to just the old sort of talking to them on the phone. So Having said all of that, I have to admit that when I do go into the office and spend time with people, when I do go into town and meet with clients face-to-face, there's just something very special. And A, it makes me happy. And B, I think it's just good, good for business and good for all of us in so many ways.
1: Yeah, it's something that I feel everybody is still working out this, how we make hybrid working really work for ourselves. You know, I think we're still internally at LCP discussing how we can continue to improve it I think we've got to a really good landing point in the moment but I think there's still things we can do to make it better and more effective and help make sure you've kind of got that maximum flexibility while getting the most out of the time together but you know I think the hybrid working has escalated and sped up the massive changes that I think were always going to come to working life, you know, offering more flexibility, allowing people to have more control over when they're working and when they're not working. It massively aids so many people, and particularly those that have caring responsibilities, to be able to still feel like they're really contributing without having to leave to pick up children or have to leave work quickly to support an relative or whatever it is. So I think hopefully it just helps to keep people in the workforce in a way that that works for them as well as the organisation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So should we turn to the future? Let's. I'm keen to hear about some of the things that you think are going to be big issues in the year ahead.
1: So the number one for me, it's not just going to be an issue in the year ahead. It's already an issue. It's been an issue for a long time and it'll be an issue for a long time in the future. And that's climate change. So I think at the end of 2021, I was really hopeful for 2022 that we were going to get a lot of impetus and momentum behind Initiatives, regulation, governmental action. And then the events that we've spoken about with regard to inflation and Russia's invasion of Ukraine have dominated the conversation. And I'm really hopeful that we have that re energization behind kind of climate change within 2023. Obviously, we've just had COP27, which I think there's been mixed responses to how successful it has been. There's been this loss and damage fund, which is the kind of headline result coming out and a recommitment around the kind of energy capping to 1.5 or no more than two degrees. But I would also say that it's been limited in its success in some ways. We're still not really seeing massive movements from many of the government's forecasts that we might actually hit 1.5 is looking less and less likely. And I'm not seeing at the government level the initiatives that we're potentially going to need. So I think that then puts the expectations back on regulators and individual companies to start to take action in this area, which I think will be interesting. So climate change was taught lots at gyro. There were tons and tons of talks. So I think, you know, that was one sign for me that it is clearly coming back on people's radar. It is, I know, going to be back on Lloyd's agenda in the coming years. And they're looking to a deep dive reviews, I think, in 2024. So It is something that's going to come back on, but I do think, you know, coming back to what I just said about the risks and thinking outside the box and the uncertainty and and really challenging that climate change is just an absolutely massive risk that has so many different ways it might unfold and manifest. And yes, insurance is only a one year business, but unless you want the business to completely, well, not completely, but but not be around in a few years time, you need to be thinking a little bit further ahead than one year. So understanding how the risks you're writing today and how that portfolio might not be the same in a few years time because we transition very differently or the world's temperature does increase and the catastrophes are bigger, more frequent in different areas than you are expecting. You need to understand where that risk is coming from and how that might change.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, the the entire world has managed to not really move forward on climate change, despite it being an existential risk worldwide. We've managed to sort of spend the last year focusing on other things. And it's not that those other things weren't important, but it's very worrying. The other thing that strikes me about climate change is the process by which companies try and engage with it and try and make themselves greener and try and move in the right direction is always going to be imperfect. Companies are going to try initiatives that do work or don't work. Companies are going to make promises that they are either able to keep or not able to keep. And we hear more and more talk about greenwashing, some of which might be from disingenuous behavior. Some just might be imperfect understanding of the risks. But whatever the cause is, a lot of that is going to then turn into litigation down the line. And so it was quite sobering to talk to Lydia Saville in episode 11 about the future sort of trends of litigation. And certainly her view was that climate change and greenwashing related litigation was going to be absolutely massive in the future and super important for insurers who might be picking up some of the bills.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I know this is something the someone at Gyro mentioned they wanted to hear more about. So I'm, I'm sure it'll definitely be one of the episodes we have in season three. I know also internally, you know, looking to do a lot more work and thinking in this area to understand more of how we can help our clients in this space and you know, making sure that we're staying on top of the latest issues as, as they unfold. I think it was something also that, that Rob mentioned in episode five, the key thing, he was talking more just more about risks more broadly, but he was like, it's not about the number necessarily, it's about how the number has changed compared to last time. And I think that's a key thing when you're looking at climate change risk is, Nobody is claiming they've got the right number of where things are going to end up in the future, but it's how has that number changed compared to where we were previously? Are we expecting things to move in one direction or another? And I think that's a really kind of key approach when you're looking at climate change is that, yeah, the number might not be exact, but it's what direction are things moving in? And therefore, how should I respond to that? What's your first key outlook?
0: Yeah. So my first key outlook point is quite closely related to one of your looking back points, which is... Just the ongoing effects of geopolitical dislocation. You know, we're continuing to see all sorts of disruption to world trade. That's not going to change anytime soon. So delays in supplies, which can have knock-on effects on costs and inflation. And just a less efficient world talk about the you know deglobalization we've all experienced a i guess globalization dividend over the last 40 50 years and things are going to cost more because they're not we're not going to be trading with that country anymore it's not going to be as simple to get things across the border anymore and so the other aspect of it that i'm quite interested in is increasing focus on resource security within nations which is both a negative in that it makes the world less efficient and therefore could be quite negative for climate change. Also a positive potentially in that some of the really sad stories over the last few decades where local industries have died because of globalization, there is the prospect to revive some of those and to have more diverse economies within countries, rather than the sort of hyper specialization and division of labor, which might save the world money, but can have a a terrible human cost. So I'm quite hopeful about that aspect. And of course, for insurers, the opportunities to insure more local industries, to insure more local infrastructure is good business as well.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting in terms of, you know, looking at the positives and the regional impacts and benefits that it might have for certain areas. Are there any industries in particular that you're kind of got on your horizon? Is it technology? Is it infrastructure? Where are you thinking the the big growth will be?
0: I mean, in the last week, it was even suggested to me, uh, I'm not expressing a view on this because I know it's controversial, but that the UK would be better off reopening its coal mines. (laughs) Because if we're using coal anyway, let's at least use coal that's got less miles on it terribly complex subject, the fact that people are even thinking those kind of thoughts, I think has got some interesting implications. I think this is quite closely related to one of my other looking forward points, which is a continuing breakdown in social cohesion. And something that's foremost in my mind at the moment is workers' rights and workers' pay people talking about a general strike in the UK in the run-up to Christmas. Interesting to see some stats today that there's quite widespread public support for workers striking. Depends on the industry, but I was encouraged to see the support there. I think we've got to recognise that there is a huge group of workers, both in the UK and other countries, who back in 2008 we told, oh, financial crisis, sorry, no salary increases this year. Then it was austerity for a number of years, so not much increases there. Then, at least in the UK, it was Brexit. Now, that's created uncertainty. So, now no salary increases there. Then it was COVID. And you've got people who've, you know, you've got a lost generation who've missed out on 10, 15 years of normal earnings progression. We shouldn't be surprised that we're seeing industrial action on the scale we are now. And yeah, I don't want to get politically expressive view, but it shouldn't be surprising to us.
1: Yeah, that really nicely ties in with both my two other Forward-looking points. So year one was around the recession and the cost of living. I don't think you know it's looking very likely that here in the UK we're going to be going into recession and we're definitely in the midst of a cost of living crisis. What that will mean in terms of insurers, so you know that could mean a reduction in the number of policies being brought, could mean an increase in fraud, various other things how can insurers prepare for that look ahead for that what measures can be put in place to make sure that we're responding to that correctly you know thinking about processes now you know how's this going to impact our reserving how's it going to impact claims you know so I think all those very practical parts as well as as you say just the very real aspect of impacting people's lives and wallets and the just general downbeatness I think that's going to play out within the next year and then yeah the other one was the you know, we talk about ESG. So I've already mentioned the E, but I think the S is, is also going to start to grow with an importance for insurers, you know, meant their workers rights. I think, you know, people are talking about the whole supply chain. So firms need to be looking at their employees, yeah. need to be looking at the communities in the local area. And then they also need to be looking at the full supply chain. And that's including business that they're writing and how socially aware those companies are. You know, we talked about it very briefly in the last episode on the World Cup, you know, the workers' rights and LGBTQ plus rights in Qatar. It's been the main thing that I think has dominated the coverage around the World Cup leading up to it. And I think that that's only going to become more and more of a talking point more widely. So, yeah, that's something I'm very much watching out for in 2023.
0: And it's very encouraging how we're all becoming more aware of where people are being treated poorly around the world. Of course, it's then our responsibility to do more about it, given that greater knowledge. But I think whether it was triggered by COVID, I don't know. But certainly over the last few years, we've all become a lot more aware of the need to be kind to each other and also kind to people around the world. And where that's not happening, there's probably more of a voice globally for people to do something about it. Again, somebody was pointing out to me this week that that's got major insurance implications because with things like growing wealth inequality and growing awareness of where people are being oppressed or not given their rights, et cetera, that has big implications for liabilities where firms, organizations get sued. It has implications on where you have jury systems, how claimant friendly they are. And then you combine that with sort of very populist style of politics that is becoming prevalent, certainly across many countries at the moment, and where you can't see many politicians putting their name to things like tort reform, which might help to control the growth of social inflation and liability costs. So again, insurers are going to have to pick up the bill, and it's going to be quite hard to predict how rapidly that keeps rising.
1: Wow. Well, that was a whistle-stop tour, wasn't it?
0: (laughs) I know. So although it's been quite a sobering year and some really, really awful things happening around the world, our ability to do something about it and to play our part in a very connected world, which is still super connected despite the deglobalization, I think is also encouraging.
1: So, shall normally we end by asking our guests some fun questions. And when Ed came back onto the podcast in one of the early episodes after the the mini budget, which I'd like to just forget actually it happened. He asked us one of the questions each. So he asked me what my dream job was and he asked you what we were going to do for dinner. So maybe we'll swap them around. So maybe I'll ask you what your dream job would be outside of financial services.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, my dream job might not come as a surprise to people who've been on video calls with me. I would love to be a professional musician. I've been a sort of frustrated professional musician most of my life. And that, that has various different incarnations. And one particular one I'd like to mention is I would like to be the guitarist in a chic covers band playing 70s disco at weddings. I, th- I think that's probably the pinnacle for me. And yeah, so yeah, I guess there's still time. And, you know, it could be a second career. In the meantime, I'll just sort of keep noodling.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Right.
0: And so tell me, what are you going to be making when we have a celebratory dinner to mark our 30th episode of Insurance Uncut?
1: So I'm going to harper back to a, dinner party that I did many years ago. So when I was at college, we did like a mini come dine with me with a few friends. We all went around each other's houses and cooked dinner and marked each other and I won. So I'm taking my recipe as the winning one. So I did a, a big paella. So we had a big paella pan and you put it out on a barbecue and you cook off a big paella with lots of seafood and, and meats and vegetables and stuff. So that would be what we'd be doing for Maine, but it's a very much outside al fresco kind of dining style followed by a panna cotta for pudding with a nice berry compote and copious amounts of wine so that would be what you'd get for dinner That's just my amazing
0: <laughs> and actually given that the weather keeps taking a turn for the worst <laughs> the sorts of outdoor paella and barbecue on a summer sunny evening is just is a wonderful thought to end with isn't it
1: yeah it's not i mean yeah not really probably the most festive christmas option i could have gone with but yeah. Well, I guess maybe thank you to all the listeners that have stayed with us for for this season. I'm, as we said at the beginning, really hope that you've enjoyed it. And we really welcome any topics or suggestions you have for things. We're we'll taking a little bit of a break over the, the holiday period, but we'll be back with you in, in 2023 with a new season.
0: Yeah thanks so much for all the people who've sent in comments and suggestions. It's just, it feels very encouraging to know that we're doing something worthwhile and I'm, I'm just super excited about where we can take it in the new year.
1: That's all we have time for this week on insurance uncut. Please join us in two weeks time for another episode.
0: This podcast is brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki freeguard Deepika Misra, Megan Frost, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode.
1: This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.